You're listening to the Felony Inc. podcast on the Startup Radio Network. In America, we live in a society that houses the largest inmate population on earth. And the current cost of mass incarceration via the prison industrial complex is incalculable. So anything that can be done to help curb the recidivism rate is incredibly valuable. That's what we attempt to do, one show at a time and one guest at a time. Each week, we interview felons and non-felons attempting to make the world a better place for those currently incarcerated, families, and communities affected by the big business of prison. Felony Inc. Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Welcome to Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, DJ Dick Hennessy, as always joined by my number one co-host, Meg Thibodeau. Meg, how are you doing today? Well, I'm pretty great, Dick. You know why? Why is that? It's your birthday. Uh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) One of the best days of the year. We get to celebrate you. And I'm pretty psyched to be here with you. And we get to celebrate by doing pretty kick-ass work with a really cool guest today. I couldn't agree more. And that's true. I'm turning 41 today. And uh, when you get to my age, the number one present you want is just... The pre- being in the presence of the people that you love and care about. And uh, so I'm glad that I get to spend it with you guys too as well. Uh, but enough about me and getting old. Uh, I'm really <laughs> <laughs> We're going to bring it back up later. So uh, for yeah. sure. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. I'll be hearing about it a lot today, I'm sure. But um, uh, really excited about the guest today that we have. Uh, we have none other than Amy Wisman, who is the founder of Returning Artists Guild. Uh, she also is a visual artist, a filmmaker, a curator, an organizer, an advocate, and a public speaker. You can check out her work at amywisman.myportfolio.com. Amy, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Happy birthday, old man. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just taking it one day at a time. Um, Amy, <laughs> uh, first time guest of the show. Uh, typically, how we do first-time guests, we like to get a little bit to uh, kind of get to know your upbringing, what kind of led you on the path that you're on today. Uh, take as much time as you need to describe that, and feel free to elaborate as much as you want. Okay. Um, so, my name is Amy Wisman. I am originally from Ohio, and I currently live in Columbus. Um, pretty much grew up in the Cincinnati area. Um, I had uh, a lot of instability in my childhood um, in terms of just like moving around a lot. Um, my mom remarried. There was just kind of some things. And I, I developed, I think, a lot of like insecurities uh, as a teenager. And, and so um, around the age of 16, I kind of was like experimenting with drugs and got involved um, with heroin and didn't really look back for like 10 years. Um, so in that span, I did manage to graduate high school and got some college under my belt. Um, but for the most part, I was pretty much just like using and, and moving around and getting into really bad relationships. Um, and so that kind of just like that spiral of addiction just like continued on for, for many years. And I tried to like access treatment. Um, but at the time there wasn't really a lot of treatment available and I didn't have insurance and there wasn't, there definitely was not treatment if you didn't have insurance. Um, so that's kind of like the theme of my short film that I made while I was incarcerated. And I think really, I did you actually make a short film while you're incarcerated? 
I actually made a short film while I was incarcerated. Okay. Yes. We can um, come back to that or talk to talk about that now, but don't breeze over that one. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, not breezing over it. I think it just was like such a, um, a hard time for me to really grapple with the fact that like I wanted to do something differently, but like there was just nothing available. Um, and I was pregnant and uh, it just kind of like, was a rough ride in that last year um, before I was incarcerated. And so I made a lot of attempts to kind of get back on the right track, but to no avail. And then, um, and then I was incarcerated, <laughs> you know, I, I like to talk a little bit about that um, just to point out the fact that I was incarcerated for a burglary and a robbery charge. Um, and both of those were considered violent crimes. And so I always like to plug um, that the majority of people that I was incarcerated with um, were incarcerated for, quote, drugs, um, but were actually there on a violent crime. And so a lot of the reform initiatives have not really um, impacted mass incarceration because they've been dealing with, um, you know, crimes that were already sort of receiving low sentences, like a possession charge or something like that. So there's been some movement like in Ohio to sort of like, uh, you know, stop sending people to prison for drug crime, but they've never addressed violent crime. And uh, I think that's why it's not really <laughs> touched the numbers at all. Um, yeah. Is that enough background? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So tell me about your, um, well, first, did you have your baby before or were you pregnant when you got incarcerated? Yeah, so um, I had my daughter about a year before um, I was sent to prison. And in that year, I, you know, I was involved in like a number of uh, attempts, I guess, at sobriety and attempts to sort of like stay out of jail. Um, none of that was really helpful. I was on uh, Subutex while I was pregnant. And then um, after I gave birth, I ended up getting in a domestic violence altercation with my daughter's father and breaking my ankle. Um, and so I got pain medicine for that. And then when I went back to the sub subutex doctor, I got kicked off of subutex. And so I had this like three month old and, uh, essentially a dope problem. And so I got back on <laughs> drugs or back on heroin specifically. And then, um, you know, that just didn't really, served me very well. Uh, I wasn't able to stay um, out of jail and I wasn't able to like get out of that relationship. I wasn't able to keep a job. Um, and so I just kind of, in a lot of ways, gave up. And I think that um, prison was kind of like this, this ultimate giving up moment for me in a lot of ways. It was really like, um, I, I no longer could try. And I just didn't have the ability to help myself. Um, and I was very much at the mercy of the system. And so when I committed my crime, um, because my co-defendant had been involved in robberies before, uh, my sentence was based, uh, like loosely off of hers. And so, um, I got an eight year sentence and I had a one-year-old and I just like, went away <laughs> and it just like that I think for me that kind of pain was sort of like the beginning of change um because I had 
I had literally exhausted myself trying to avoid this outcome and, and the outcome happened anyway. And, and I had this like brand new baby and, um, I was sent to maximum security prison. So I was on like a 21 hour lockdown for the first two years. Um, and just kind of like really in a, just a tremendous amount of pain. And I think that, um, that was a, a place, a jumping off place for me to kind of start doing some things differently or thinking about things differently. Um, I feel that so deeply. I had a one-year-old when I was locked up too. It's really it was a kind just, of pain that's really difficult to describe for sure. You can't, you can't tell people how, how hurtful it is. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't really, it really was, um, a real amputation. Yeah. And then to, so I served five years. Um, and then when I was released, you know, the relationship that I had hoped for or anticipated, uh, didn't happen. And so I'm still doing just a ton of damage control in that relationship. I'm still like, um, trying to just like earn trust and love and, um, create like safety for her um and it's been really it's been really hurtful and it just sucks like she's the one person uh that I've like done everything for in terms of like all that I do to try to like improve my life and hers and um I feel like you can't really put a price tag on that relationship and I'm still not on the other side of it so I don't know like how to quantify really like the damage done, um, in her life. It's amazing. These, how, you know, it's just not, it cannot be overstated or stated enough how much incarceration impacts children and families. It really can't. Tell us more about the short film you made in prison, how even you got the opportunity to, to make a film while you were there. Um, I should probably back up a little bit. So when I first, uh, kind of started doing artwork, it was because I was in that maximum lockdown situation. And, uh, I was really looking for ways I think to like connect with my daughter. So I began like making her all kinds of stuff, cards, t-shirts, you know, jewelry, whatever I could, um, source to send her gifts. And in the process of doing that, I started, kind of realizing that like I was pretty good at art um and that other people wanted to like join and participate so um I created an art therapy program and by the time I left prison there were nine facilitators running that program we did three weekly classes different um mindset or different kind of syllabus for each class and so in the process of like pushing through administration and like trying to find allies and build that program. Um, I met a woman named Tyra Patterson, who I was incarcerated with at the time who has since been granted clemency. Um, but at the time there was a filmmaker named Shinoya Chuko who was interviewing Tyra, um, because she was working on a film called clemency, which actually won Sundance, I believe in 2019, maybe it was 18, but it was best picture Sundance. Um, Clemency is a great film. I would suggest it to anyone. But in her process of doing research, she came to uh, DCI and initially was just going to maybe do a one-off kind of 
talk to us and have us work on one film together. Um, and then I think through the process of, of meeting the women that wrote short stories, she realized very quickly that we would all have to make our own films. Um, and so there were five of us in the project and, um, I made a short film and my co-founder of the returning artist guild also made a short film and those films have shown nationally. Um, they're also going to be screening at MoMA this year. Um, so we still do a little bit with the films. Um, she still is making films. <laughs> so my co-founder right now is in the process of doing three short films at, at once. Um, it's a little hectic for her, but that, that opportunity was really incredible. I mean, I think, it did so much to humanize our stories. It did so much um, work in terms of people starting to think maybe a little bit more deeply about why people go to prison and specifically women. Um, and it was really where I began to sort of develop this narrative of the first prison. And I talk about that a lot when I do public speaking. Um, and it's just to say that there were many prisons that I was in long before I was incarcerated. Um, and so I had to kind of like move through those prisons before I could actually sort of be released from the physical one. And I think that, um, that, that opportunity kind of dignified me in a way in my story. And it gave me this sense of, um, importance and it, it kind of started, planting that seed um, for me in terms of like doing the work of reshaping the narrative. Like we have to change uh, the mindset of everyone in prison is like some kind of murderer, serial killer, like ax man, rapist, like crazy crime. And that's just not the case. Um, and so those, that, those films were great. Art therapy was great. Um, I learned a lot about just like advocating for myself and what it takes to push a program through and, um, what, what the challenges or the needs of these women that I was with, um, are and, and how I could reflect that and, and grow with them. It made me like learn how to teach. I mean, I just learned so much, um, and developed so many skills that translated into reentry really sort of, um, effortlessly. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, um, so you wrote and directed the the film for they know not, mm -hmm. which was part of the pens to pictures project. Um, can you talk a little bit about the pens to pictures project? Yeah. So Chinoya was the uh, writer director that spearheaded oh, okay. that project. Um, and essentially what we did, it was really cool. So we wrote short stories. Um, she took us through the process of like changing those short stories into short scripts and um, like director script breakdowns. And then once we got to that point, we were assigned a co-director um, from the local film school, which was Wright State. And so with the co-director, we watched audition footage and picked actors. We um, picked locations through photos. We um, were able to work with most of our actors. They were able to come inside the prison and we were um, able to kind of direct them through rehearsals. And then our co-directors and Shinoya shot the films on location outside of the prisons. And then we went through post, we edited the films. Uh, we, you know, got to experience some of the marketing behind that. We um, were able to go out and do a little bit of public speaking. So I left the prison, I think three times to go and talk about the films. And that was all pretty 
radical. I mean, nothing like that had ever happened at DCI before, and it hasn't happened since. Um, so it's really special, I think. Yeah, that's mind-boggling that that was even reality. Honestly. They weren't happy. The prison wasn't <laughs> happy about it. Um, but fortunately, you know, administrators on a higher level than the prison we were in, um, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, saw it as a, a moment to get some better publicity than what they had going on. And so uh, I think because it really put a shine on DRC, we were kind of allowed some extra privileges. Yeah, so the benefits of politics sometimes in that situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one of the questions I have for you was, uh, I read in the earlier interview you did that uh, you had, before you went to prison, you had an idea, you thought you had an idea of what it was going to be like, what prison was like. And uh, when you actually went there and found yourself in prison, it was completely, uh, you, you felt like you were completely wrong about your assumptions of prison. Uh, I was just, out of curiosity, how were you wrong? But like, what did you think about it was going to be like? And then when you got there, what, how are you just like? I mean, I think I'm similar to everyone else, right? In that I've seen a lot of prison movies over yeah. the years. Um, and I also have a brother who's doing life. Oh, wow. um, and so I've been visiting him since I was like 15. Um, and he was in a men's max in Ohio that's sort of notorious for many years. And so my experience is visiting him and just like the tension, the sort of sexual overtone um, was a little nerve wracking. And so like, I, I guess I had the idea like most people that like prison was a place where you're probably going to get raped. You're going to have to fight. You're going to um, just like have all of these disadvantages and you're going to be surrounded by all of these people that are like really bad. And then I got to prison and despite the fact that I was in the max um, for women, what I realized is that I was really just surrounded by a bunch of people who were like me. So women that had been in, you know, really traumatic domestic violence relationships, women that had drug problems, women that, um, you know, just had made choices based on, you know, their circumstances. But I was, I think, really relieved to realize that like, oh, there's grandmas who knit in prison and there's like women who will cook for me when I'm sick and people who are going to look out for me and make sure that I'm okay. And um, there's certainly like, you know, violence and things of that nature um, there, but it wasn't the majority of my experience, it just was a, a fraction of the experience. And so I think really I had to reshape in my own mind who's in prison and why they're there. Um, that's yeah. powerful work. It's really powerful work. It turns out there is not actually a subhuman set species of criminal that we put no. in prison to protect society. Prison is actually full of a lot of folks that really are good people trying their best. And like you said, have made choices based on their circumstances. And that's really, um, I think it's really something that we need to keep, keep, uplifting and keep telling people, you know, so that people understand that it's primarily folks trying really hard to be good people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think prison for me, I, I realized a few things there. One, um, we do too much blaming of poor people for the conditions of poverty. And um, 
you know, also that I think, so I made this, our logo for the Returning Artist Guild is a little guy named Gomi, and he is the god of mass incarceration. And what I think about mass incarceration is, is really, it's um, kind of an ancient idea in a way. It's very much um, a place where society kind of get, gets rid of its unwanteds. And maybe in some way people feel safer or we feel protected or, or even atoned, like we've washed our hands of these people. Um, but in fact, we've not disappeared them, right? Like they still exist and uh, many of us will return to society. And so, um, you know, to, to be swallowed in, in a system and then spit out is, is really traumatic. It's hard to come back from. And I think depending on the place where you started, um, you, you might not be able to. You know, you just might not be able to really recover. And so I feel like I've had a lot of advantages um, in terms of reentry because I had somewhat of a support system built in. You know, my daughter was with my mom. I knew she was safe. Um, I had, you know, people to call or, or family and things like that. But so many of the women that I was with did not. They had none of those things. And, you know, they're released into communities that can't support them. And so... It's like you take a set of folks who have limited uh, opportunities, possibilities, and skill sets to begin with, and then the process of going through prison actually makes it even harder. You know, it's real compound trauma. So then you release these people that actually have even less skill sets now. The process of having to learn how to survive in prison is a whole skill set that's not useful on the outside. And it's sort of in the way that trauma does, it takes over other things you know how to do in life. So you come out sort of less equipped and with more PTSD and, and, um, and stigma. So it's, it's a whole trip the collateral damage, you know, like just doesn't stop. I think I was most foolish for thinking while I was doing my time that I was like serving my sentence, you know, like I really thought that for a long time. Um, and then I was released and I was like, Oh no, it's just beginning. Um, now you owe everyone an explanation of your whole life and you can't get a job and you can't find a place to rent. And you know, you're going to be like scorned at the PTA or any positive thing you try to do is going to be incredibly awkward. And then I didn't have the skill sets, you know, I didn't know how to talk about where I'd been for five years. And I didn't know um, really like how much information I was supposed to be giving people all of the time. And I just felt really, I think kind of like isolated in my experience, despite the fact that I had people around me and even a brother that was doing life. I mean, I wasn't like unaware of prisons ever. Um, But in terms of what reentry would be like, I I was just totally unprepared. And I think I've done okay. Um, But that's, you know, I think that's one of the main reasons I created the Returning Artists Guild was that I needed um, A, to continue making art. Like that was obvious to me. Um, B, I realized that my art is stronger in, in conversation with art like it. Um, and so like when we curate shows that are all of this, you know, artwork from currently and formerly incarcerated artists, people really begin to sort of like elevate what they think about that artwork. And then also just like, I needed those people. I didn't want to leave people behind. Um, there were a lot of people that I like genuinely really cared about and missed and, uh, felt like 
I had lost my family in a way and um, I didn't want to just be out here breezing around in the wind. So like, I just really needed that community. And and now um, as I become like more independent and I've put more of my ducks in a row, so to speak, that need for community is not lessened. Um, and the returning artist guild, I think has been one of the things that has allowed me to be successful really um, because it gave me a reason to continue to like push. Amazing. So we want to hear about the returning artist guild, all the things, but let's take a break real quick for an ad and we'll be right back. This hour of the startup radio network is supported by bridges to change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to healthcare, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right. Welcome back to Felony Podcast. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Amy Wisman, um, founder of the Returning Artist Guild and artist. You can check out her work at amywisman.myportfolio.com. And Amy, we'd like to kind of get into the just talking about how you came up with the concept for the Returning Artist Guild and what it's about. So the Returning Artist Guild uh, is a network of currently and formerly incarcerated artists. There's about 30 now. Um, that I'm representing and you know aside from the need for community really the returning artist guild initially was about um, us finding and creating space like uh, the arts was one place that I expected there to be less barriers or limitations based on my felony but I quickly realized that there were just as many Um, you know the slightly different barriers like I've not been to art school etc. And so like just as an outsider approaching fine arts from a non-academic path or a non-traditional path, there's plenty of barriers. Um, But then when you make work that is political or it is around like this kind of narrative, like those kind of barriers start stacking. And so I just kind of was like, I'll curate my own shows. Like I'll just do it myself and I'll just do pop-ups. And that's kind of how the Returning Artist Guild was formed. I mean, I think the other piece of that is that many of us were already in communication with each other. And um, I'm sort of, I guess, blessed with the ability to network and and talk to people. And so I was able to kind of do some of the legwork that some of my other artists just would not be able to do um, for a variety of reasons. And so as a group, I think we just realized that we're better together and that we can really like uh, leverage this material together um, in a way that will be impactful for the community. And so that's kind of how it was sort of born was just like, let's do some shows. And then now, I mean, it's incredible. So it's about 50% inside versus outside for the folks inside. Uh, you know, essentially I make sure that they have a good person that I can talk to on the outside and like exchange money with and, um, I'm able to like pick up their artwork and things like that and show it. 
And then, you know, they've even decided to create their own calls for different projects. And so then like they're making calls and I'm sourcing them out um, even nationally sometimes. So that's been great. And then for my folks that are outside, just the, the piece about like professional development and storytelling and, and working on how you um, talk about this issue or how we talk about it together and, and how you can leverage the things that you're doing um, either towards like making money or towards like building some kind of career in public speaking or like whatever it is that you want to do. Um, we want to help you do that. And so we've got a variety of artists, um, visual artists, filmmakers, fire dancers, poets, um, rappers. I'm going to forget some kind of media. So forgive me, whoever I've left out, uh, vocalists, just all kinds of stuff. And so we're able to really like produce these pretty cool shows because there's just such a variety of things going on. Um, and then afterwards we get to like all hang out and be a family. And we had a retreat this summer for the first time, which was really exciting. We kind of, despite COVID linked up and, um, assessed everybody's needs and like what they wanted, what they saw for the returning artist guild, where they think it's going. Um, so we've developed some kind of longer term goals. One of the things that we need for sure is like a permanent physical space. <laughs> we need a home either for, you know, makerspace, exhibition space, all that kind of stuff, but hopefully some art artist residencies. Um, I've been matching artists up with like mentors. So older artists that are kind of doing a similar thing, but don't have the barriers that they do. Um, just a lot of like really cool stuff has come out of that. And it sounds incredible. Um, so if you're listening right now and you want to be like a part of this or submit some of the artwork and uh, maybe be considered to be a part of uh, the returning artist guild. How do you go about that? Um, you can find us on Facebook or Instagram at the returning artist guild. You could also just email the returning artist guild at gmail.com. Um, and we will get back to you and we'd love to have you. I mean, we've got some national people. Not everybody's in Ohio for the most part we are. Um, and, you know, if it makes sense to partner, we'll partner with organizations. We're, totally um invested in trying to work within the community we're not uh we're not scorning the community despite the fact that they may not embrace us we really want to partner and and kind of work towards change and what what specifically are you looking for when you're looking for someone to join the guild uh like this just having someone that's been incarcerated or someone that has a specific set of talents or is it kind of an open spectrum it's kind of an open spectrum you know i've got some artists now that initially thought they wouldn't be able to be a part of because they're doing something like graffiti, for instance, which is kind of a non-traditional media, but totally acceptable. Um, we've got some other formerly incarcerated folks who just come to our events and help us manage like merch and sales and like set up teardown. So not everybody in the returning artist guild is a uh, quote, quote unquote, an artist. Um, but yeah, being currently or formerly incarcerated is like the condition or membership and then we'll work with you on what your art is yeah. <laughs> or how you can like participate. That's great. Yeah. I mean, There's gotta be some places where besides prison, where having committed a crime is what you have to do to become a member. <laughs> Look that up, you know, but it's, it's <laughs> There's a great gotta be a few places where you get a privilege for it. 
It's so great. And some of like the the conversations are just like the fun that we have outside of that has been like really great. I mean, there's just so much, um, I think, depth to our shared experience that we can't like share with everyone. And so it feels really good to be surrounded by people who get you, who are going to get your weird joke about, you know, a sack lunch or whatever. And um, it's, it's just been really special, I think, to to be amongst peers and to feel valued and, and to feel like this is a place where like, we don't need to hear like your background. Like we already know it. And so there's, there's no judgment and there's no limitation, right? Like no one cares. And so you can just move on to, to focusing on what, what it is that you need to do or what you need from us or how we can help you. Everyone's on the same page. And uh, speaking of that, this is kind of the big deal, the big news right now I want to bring up. Um, recently, Nicole R. Fleetwood put together something called Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration. And that's on display in the Museum of Modern Art, or MoMO for short. Um, our, uh, Carol Alden, who we interviewed, uh, I think a couple months back. who was Carol's part of my friend. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great interview. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun with Carol. Obviously, an affiliate of the Justice Arts Coalition. Both you guys are included in this. Um, tell us all about it, please. Will do. I should shout out that Carol is one of our out-of-state members. And uh, she and I are planning on building an installation together. Carol's a welder amongst her fiber art other things. And so Carol and I have been slowly designing and uh, conceptualizing an installation for next summer. So stay tuned for that. Um, and... You know, I met Carol and Nicole Fleetwood and Wendy Jason of the Justice Arts Coalition. I met all three of them at this wonderful conference in California put on by California Lawyers for the Arts. And essentially, if you know anything about California prisons, you know that they have like access to all the arts um, and they're really well funded. And so I was out there just kind of uh, as a member of the Ohio Prison Arts Connection, which is another organization that I curate for. And in that process of like being out there and, and learning all of these things that were going on in these other prisons, I, I approached Nicole Fleetwood with, with the question I was kind of talking to you about earlier, which is essentially, hey, am I actually strengthening these institutions by doing this work? And should I instead participate in abolition efforts only? And Nicole and I had a really lovely conversation, which I could sum it up by pretty much saying, uh, her response was like, welcome to the work. Um, this is the question that we all have and we all grapple with. And that's why there's a spectrum of people working on different levels. And um, so she didn't really like answer the question for me, but she allowed me to be a little more comfortable sitting with the question. And I think what Nicole has done with her book, which was the impetus for the show at MoMA, was really incredible because she gave people language to think about this artwork. She really elevated this work um, in terms of how you look at it and how you judge it and how you value it and why it's important. And she just did so much um, with this book in terms of like putting artists like myself in the position where we belong, I think in the broader spectrum of like art criticism. And so uh, to see like the book turn into this huge exhibition has been like really dope. And you know, I'm in, in MoMA with like so many of my art crushes. Um, and just like thrilled that I get to put this on my resume and that, you know, this like has, that my experience has like culminated 
here. And so like the pieces that I was making, um, I never in life would have like imagined that they would end up in MoMA. And that's just been really incredible. But, you know, the side note or the caveat to that is um, there are 44 artists in the exhibition. Three of them are in permanent collections, either at MoMA or, you know, similarly sized art institutions. And of the three that are in permanent collections, one is dead and two are unhoused. And so I think that's been kind of sitting with me recently. It's just like thinking about how um, artists like myself are valued and how our work is valued and how that either does or does not actually trickle out into our like daily lived experience. Um, and so for me, it's just given me a little more uh, reason to like do things like the returning artist guild to make sure that my artists are supported on the back end and that, um, you know, people aren't exploiting them or just like taking their work and then that's it. Yeah, because that's huge. Uh, that's one of the things we touched on uh, with Carol is that actually she was approached by other um, organizations or whatever. And then there's actually a lot that don't have uh, the inmates' best interest at heart. You know, surprise, no. surprise. That just blows no. my mind that there's people out there that are stealing inmates' art and that's what they're doing on purpose. Like of all the things, like from people that have had everything taken away, to take away like their creative, what they have produced creatively inside of these institutions to take that to is just unconscionable. It yeah, is sure. like the institutions have a long history of doing that themselves, you know, but to see um, outsiders do it, it's, it's kind of strange. And what I realized, I, I guess when I got out was that there was a market for like prison art Um and I still don't really know how to feel about that. You know, like, I don't know if it's a good thing that folks are interested in art that's coming from these spaces or if it's just like purely exploitative. But Carol and I have both done a lot of work in terms of like thinking of very concretely and, and consciously about who we partner with and, and how. Um, and it's, it's trickled out into the other work. Like, I won't let anyone in the Returning Artist Guild tell their story for free. You know, like, those are things that I had to learn. I did that a few times and I was like, yeah, no. You know, like we don't do this unless it makes sense. If there's relationship value or some other value, then you can offset that. But like in terms of just like going out and doing public speaking for a gas card, no, no more of that. And so, um, you know, like it's been a learning lesson, but I've gotten a lot better at being like, oh, what's the honorarium for that? you know um for real oh, and so many how much inmates, can you pay performers <laughs> you know yeah that's so smart i mean it's it's even before folks get out there's so many ways that throughout the process of getting into prison and the myriad of of psychology appointments and things that you have to do and then upon release how many times an inmate is asked to tell their story and like reveal their trauma is so much more and so sort of expected that inmates develop kind of a, um, a way that they're just expected to share their deepest secrets. And it's so important yeah. to empower people to understand that their stories are not for free and for public consumption without consent, you know, without deep consent. It's so interesting what you brought up about the, um, am I, you know, is, if, by doing this work with institutions, are you empowering and uplifting institutions when you're trying to uplift people? And is that contrary to doing the abolition work? I think that's so fascinating. It's such a paradox, you know, for sure. 
Um, I love that you're still doing it because, you know, the paradox, I feel like living in the paradox is kind of the song of our people right now. And how much can we hold these opposite ideas and, and do what's really important, which is to keep going and to keep taking care of each other, right? And so how many of these people that you're working with are able to get what they need because of you, despite the system? You were talking about despite the system, not because of the system. You were talking a little bit um, about your own prison experience and how you got to get out and talk about these films. The institution didn't even like that. You know, there's often there's a paradox there, too. They allow these programs in that, you know, there's pressure from from the public to allow these programs in that are actually rehabilitative when the prison doesn't necessarily want rehabilitation in their institutions. So, you know, it's always walking a really weird line in this arena. And it's just so I, I think it's really, really valuable that you're doing this work. I think so. <laughs> but you're probably able to see, you know, really, um, and, and I'll ask, you know, like, tell us about what you see in terms of, you know, uh, impact, you know, how do you feel that you're being impactful? And what kind of um, any stories that you have related to that? It's, it's a big question. And, and I, can say this. I did a Google search on myself this morning and in the last two years, it's improved tenfold. Um, so I think that just by nature of like my mugshot panel, not being like the first 10 things that pop up when you Google search me is really exciting, just like personally in my own sphere of influence. And, you know, I have, I have a little bit of like an ax to grind, I suppose, with a lot of people that do public speaking around prisons. Like, I, I can't stand to hear someone say prison saved my life. And I've, I've heard it like so many times and you'll never catch me saying that. Um, I'll say that it provided space and time. And that was it. It provided space and time and, and limited, extremely limited space and very uncomfortable time at that. But, um, you know, I was able to use that to my own benefit, I think for a lot of reasons. One, I had a, a good education. So I had the ability to like read and learn and teach myself things. And um, I knew enough about um, how to make change um, that I was able to like figure out how to make change. But, you know, none of those things were offered to me. Like those were things that I did. And, and I think that that's a real big misconception is that the expectation in the public is that prisons are sites of rehabilitation, but the reality is that they are not. Um, and that very little programming is provided. And even uh, if you had all of the programs, uh, having programs in the context of a prison um, isn't all that helpful. You know, like, I don't know how many college students would be successful if we threw them all in a prison their first year, you know, and said, okay, you can go to college, but you got to do it here. Um, so I think one of the things that, that I've seen um, the Returning Artists Guild at least do here locally is definitely humanize who we are. Um, you know, I'm constantly surprised by how many people still tell me that I don't look like I've been to prison. Um, and I don't know if that's like a racial conception or if that's like an IQ thing because I'm, you know, speak pretty well or I don't really know. And I don't know how to unpack that all the time. 
Um, and, and so, yeah, that's one of the things is just like, well, I do look like I've been to prison though. Like it's all over me. It's, it's in every explanation that I've had to give in the last few years. It's uh, a major part of my life on a daily basis, even, in, even now. And so like, certainly I think I've changed, um, a little bit of the face of incarceration and a little bit of the why. Um, but, but more of that work needs to be done, you know, even let's one of my more, I think, interesting gigs is that I work with a group called prosecutor impact and, uh, they essentially are working on training prosecutors in empathy, uh, were that a possibility. And so, (laughs) uh, you know, like at least in that sphere, I, I know that I've made an impact because I've seen, um, the response, right. Of prosecutors to me and, and to hearing all of the backstory. And what I always like to point out is that all of that backstory was in a pre-sentence investigation, right? Like all of that information was on paper somewhere, but no one paid attention. And so I think the main thing really is just like, continuing to try to put myself in positions where maybe I'm a little uncomfortable, um, but that it like evolves towards this notion of like justice and greater good. Yeah. The stuff that you're the most uncomfortable in is kind of uh, where you attain the most growth in my opinion. Yes. Um, yeah. It's, it's, they're mutually exclusive or inclusive. Um, and also uh, about looking like you've been to prison. We all look like we've been to prison uh, just I feel like that question just comes from a great place of ignorance because we don't have tattooed <laughs> tears or, you know, right, whatever people right. expect is what happens. Um, I'm like, oh, okay. I don't look like I've been to prison. Well, I sure feel like it. Yeah, it's just nonsense. <laughs> um, you know, I've been checking out your art. I just wanted to kind of transition to that real quick. Uh, okay. This morning I, I, I did a screenshot and I sent it to Meg. Uh, you're the good cop when pigs fly. Uh, piece. Can you talk a little bit about um, your medium for that and what the motivation was? Yeah, so that is actually part of a three-part series um, I made. They were um, archetypes and street gods. That's how I referred to them. And they were all based on animal idioms. So the first one in the series is the middleman. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And he um, represents, I think, both like a, a dope boy, kind of like used car salesman kind of guy, and a a parole officer and, and sort of like stands in the middle as a gatekeeper. Um, the second piece is the returning citizen, a fish out of water. And it's, uh, just that it's a huge fish and it's like got a kind of crazy crown and it's properly baited with a hook. And, um, I think for me, it just was like this feeling of, of release what it was supposed to be and what it actually was. And then the third figure is the good cop when pigs fly um, I chose when pigs fly because I don't believe a good cop exists. I believe all cops are complicit in a bad system. Um, and if there were good cops, they're not making change fast enough. So I'm just not interested in that narrative. Um, and, and when pigs fly, I think is kind of a very Ohio thing. It's a very Cincinnati thing. There's flying pigs all over Cincinnati. It's just like one of those goofy local things. And uh, I just had to use it. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful for, for reform and for change, um, and for shifting funds around. Um, but like, ultimately I'm very much of the opinion that, you know, the, the police are not doing the job that we, uh, design them to do. And that if we don't redesign that job, um, we're all, we're all complicit. 
in a bad system at this point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it also, in 2017, you did a series about uh, women of color being murdered by police, which I thought was very profound and very powerful. Uh, personally, in Portland, we had a huge uh, case of that um, where Kendra James, I'm, I'm sure you're probably not too familiar with that, but Kendra James. Oh, she James, was one of the women I did. Oh, you did? You did, Kendra James? Yeah, I did. Kendra. I was trying to see. I, I zoomed in on all of them. I couldn't find all of them, but I was trying to see if she was in there. I don't think there. I have all of them posted, but I did do Kendra. Yeah, that was a huge, it's still huge to this day. I mean. It was so yeah, long ago. What's crazy was... is that it was so long ago and yeah. that none of these women have received justice. Um, so, you know, I did those portraits while I was still incarcerated. And then this past year, I um, went ahead and like Xeroxed those and have been like on a wheat paste campaign, um, doing a lot of say her name and putting those portraits up. But uh to be honest, I'm really just deeply saddened by it, you know, especially in the case of Breonna Taylor, one of the first women to have so much media coverage and, and so much like support and hashtags and all of this kind of stuff. And then, you know, she still did not receive justice. And I think it says a lot about uh, the position of the black woman in America and uh, her relationship to justice. And I will continue to wheat paste and paint portraits and, and do what I need to do um, to support the movement. But it's just, it's just deeply sad, saddens me that like I've made these all these years ago and, and not, not, nothing has changed. Nothing has shifted. Absolutely not. And um, the thing is, you know, the fact that when we stop talking about it, when we stop bringing up these situations, they cease to exist. So uh, in a way, when you're doing artwork, it's immortalized. Um, I think that's huge to me personally. And uh, I really appreciate you um, just dedicating Same. that time and that energy into that. I've been thinking about ways to maybe try to return the portraits uh, to the women's families. Yeah. I think that's probably my next move. That'd be huge. I'm sure they'd really appreciate that. Um, changing gears real quick. Uh, we talked earlier about... Uh, the God of Mass Incarceration on Your Gods of Capitalism mm -hmm. series. Uh, who were the other gods of capitalism? So there's uh, the God of Consumerism, um, which is like one of my favorites. I think that's <laughs> super relevant in terms of capitalism. There's God of Exploitation, um, which was kind of really, I should maybe could have been the God of Labor Power. I'm not sure, but Labor Power would have been the reverse, like, so the God of exploitation. Um, and there's a few more. Um, there's the God of sexualization, which is pretty interesting. You know, he's um, got a lot of black and brown women specifically kind of um, around him. And I think for me, it was just like ways to think about um, the impact of, of capitalism. And I, I don't think we really like teach our kids enough about the system and, and what it means to be capitalists, you know, I, I just don't think there's a lot of clarity around the kind of the system of government that we have, um, and specifically the economic system that we have. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to check out all those works as well. Um, Everyone should. <laughs> yeah, the art is wonderful. It's really the visual component that you'll have to Google to go along with the show. Yeah, and you can check out the majority of this on your uh, my portfolio, Amy Wisman at or dot myportfolio dot com. Correct. Yep. 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 Um, and what about uh, if we wanted to watch the video, uh, the movie that you made? Is that available online at all? 
There is a link to the film on my website. And if you want to watch it, um, you can just email me and I'll send you the password. They're still password protected for now because we do still screen them. Um, but eventually they'll live online somewhere, I'm sure, for free. Okay. Well, I'll definitely be emailing you about that for sure. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I'll give you the password. Yes. Uh, would love to see that. Yeah. We're, uh, we're starting around real short on time, but real quick, uh, what is Cloud City Jail? Oh, okay. So, so Cloud City was the first event that the Returning Artists Guild participated in, and it was put on by a group of kind of really radical young organizers here in Columbus. And the theme for Cloud City, it was a festival, was what if a city was built by artists? Um, and so there was like a mall, a theater, like uh, fashion and commerce, skate parks. There was like a health department people, voter registration people. It was really, really cool. And so I built a jail. And um, in the jail, we had artwork, we had a lot of games, we had a, one game was commissary or not. So we had a, like a whole table full of things and we'd have people guess like, which item did not come from commissary. And we had a Price is Right themed game with that as well. We had a, a contraband game. So we had another table where everything on there was allowable except for one thing and people had to guess which one was contraband. Um, and we also had Make It Spark, my favorite game, where I gave people ra uh, razor blades and batteries and to try to see if anyone could light a candle. And uh, that was probably the most fun I think I've had at an event, just like watching people try to figure this out. Um, and then the folks that got it right away, you'd be like, hmm, mm, where'd you learn that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish I could have seen that for sure. Uh, <laughs> that was fun. It was yeah. really fun. Hopefully you can bring it back sometime or resurrect yep. it after, after COVID's all taken care of. <laughs> um, Amy, I can't thank you enough. Uh, thank you so much for being a, a guest today on the podcast. Uh, honestly, I could talk to you easily for another couple hours. This hour went incredibly fast. Yeah. It did go fast. Yeah, it sure did. Incredible guest. We'd love to have you back on the show sometime if that's cool with you and check in with you and see how everything's going. For sure. And, uh, I really I, enjoyed it. Yeah, and I absolutely will be emailing you about the movie and uh, <laughs> be checking out I'll be checking out most of your artwork and and I really want to kind of take kind of delve more into the Returning Artists Guild. Um, again, you guys check it out, Returning Artists Guild on Facebook and Instagram. And once again, the website is amywisman.myportfolio.com, and um, there'll be links to stuff when we post everything on our social media as well. Um, Sweet. Yeah, but on that note, uh, thank you so much again. Uh, incredible story. Yeah, thank uh, you so much, Amy. Thank you, guys, and happy birthday. I meant to make <laughs> an old man joke, and I forgot. That's all good. <laughs> work it in somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure I'll be even older the next time we, we interview you. So. Oh, It'll still be relevant. Will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that note, thank you, everyone. Uh, Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Meg. Thank you, everyone that makes Startup or Felony Inc. podcast possible and Startup Radio Network possible. Um, my birthday, I want to give thanks back to all the people that mean a lot to me. Um, I just want to remind everyone that's listening to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. at Pacific Time at StartupRadioNetwork.com. And uh, until then, we'll see you next week. Be safe and uh, peace. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.